Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Guy Hanson. I'm Director of Exhibitions here at the National Library of Australia, and I'm very happy uh, to be introducing this talk today. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we're now privileged to call home. The library's spring ex exhibition, Dombrovskis Journeys into the Wild, reveals the amazing world of photographer Peter Dombrovskis. If you've not already been to the exhibition, you're in for a treat. These amazing photographs of landscapes in Tasmania have a magical quality. Walking through the exhibition is both calming and inspiring. When I look at these photos, I can hear the sounds of the forests and the crash of water and waterfalls. These photographs really do transport you to another place. This exhibition is sourced entirely from the Dombrovskis collection. This is one of the library's largest photographic collections by a single creator and consists of over 3,000 images. It is impressive. Um, all of these wonderful images have been digitised by the library and are now available online. This exhibition has mined this wonderful archive of one of Australia's most important photographers to produce this beautiful show which you'll see downstairs. Surprisingly, this is one of the first significant retrospectives of Peter's work. Today, exhibition curator Matthew Jones is going to talk to you about he brought this exhibition together. He has had the enviable task of examining all of these images and curating this wonderful display. Please join me in welcoming Matt to give an insight into the life and work of Peter Dombrovskis. Thanks, Guy. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'd also, um, before I begin, like to acknowledge the traditional, traditional custodians of this land. I also think their elders past and present for caring for this beautiful place we all live in now. <clears throat> now, today I would like to talk a little bit about the exhibition, Dombrovskis Journeys into the Wild. I'll also talk a little bit about the library's involvement with the collection that Guy mentioned before. Uh, what influenced Dombrovskis as a photographer, and of course the photographs themselves. But before I do that, I might start with a biographical overview about Peter Dombrovskis. Oh, gone too far too soon. Um, Peter Herbert Dombrovskis was born in a refugee camp in Germany in 1945 to Latvian parents. His father, Carl, had gone missing, perhaps killed at the end of the war. In 1950, his mother, Adele, made the decision to move with Peter to the other end of the world, Hobart, Tasmania. After some time, Adele and Peter moved to Ferntree, a village halfway up Mount Wellington, the inescapable natural edifice that looms over Hobart. And this is actually the Dombrovskis home, uh, and Peter took this photo um, in Ferntree. I don't know if you've been to Mount Wellington, but if you travel up the, uh, the road to the top or to the pinnacle, Ferntree is basically the last suburb uh, on that road. Now, the mountain, that is Mount Wellington, acts as a border to the wilderness of southwest Tasmania, which the young refugee would soon, through his photography, do as much as any Australian to protect, record and celebrate. Adele, who had taken him at the age of 13 for a walk across Tasmania's famous overland track, taught Peter to love nature and encouraged him to take up photography, buying him a quality 35mm Zeiss camera when he was only six. Yeah, a real protege. Um, 
So he used this camera, but photography really didn't take hold of Dombrovskis until after the age of 17 when he met this man, Alagus Drahanis, the photographer and environmentalist. And they met at a canoeing camp run by Trahanis for the National Fitness Council of Tasmania. Drahanis himself was a refugee, and the older man became a father figure to Peter, passing on his love of photography and Tasmania's wilderness. Their story, um, their individual stories, and the story of their relationship is both remarkable and tragic. Both, as I mentioned before, were refugees from war-torn Central Europe. They both loved the Tasmanian wilderness and wilderness photography, and they both died too young doing what they loved, taking photos in Tasmania southwest. Uh, Lagos died when he was uh, 49 and Peter when he was 51. After leaving school, Peter studied architecture, botany and zoology and spent his early 20s working as a draftsman in the Tasmanian Department of Construction. But his life dramatically changed direction in 1972. In that year, Trahanis, on a canoeing and photography trip in southwest Tasmania, had slipped on some rocks and was carried away by the Gordon River. Dombrovskis was part of the search party and was the one who actually found his body. Later that year, Lake Peta, the natural wonder that Trahanis had done more than anyone to document and to save, was dammed, flooded and forever changed. After Trahanis's death, Dombrovskis began to pursue photography with a new vigour, he quit his job and began to self-publish his own work through what was later called West Wing Press. West Wind Press. Very hard to say if you say it very quickly. Um, his first calendar was produced in 1972, his first diary in 1976, and his first book, The Quiet Land, in 1977. Earlier in 1974, he married his first wife, Gabrielle, and Peter and Gabrielle had five children together. By the time of the publication of his next book, which is on the screen, Wild Rivers, which was published in 1983 and was a collaboration with his friend, the environmentalist Bob Brown, much had changed for Peter. He had switched to larger, a larger format camera, uh, the Linhof, and had taken one of the most famous photographs in Australian history, Morning Mist, Rock Island Bend, Franklin River. The image, selected by Brown, was integral to the successful campaign to thwart the Tasmanian hydroelectric Commission's plan to dam the Gordon and Franklin Rivers. From 1979 to 1981, Dombrovskis had canoed much of the Franklin and Gordon Rivers, taking photographs of the endangered system. The images were used in this book, which was dedicated to Trahanas. A uh, bit of a plug here for the book, done by NLA Publishing. Um, the Rock Island Bend image was also taken on one of these trips. In the introductory essay to the book that you can see on your screen, published by NLA Publishing, and it's called Journeys into the Wild, for the photography of Peter Dombrovskis, and it's available in the shop for $39.95. Um, <laughs> Peter writes of the first time he saw the transparency on a light box at the Dombrovskis house. And there it is. So this is Bob. Then Peter placed a horizontal transparency of Rock Island Bend on the light box. I was galvanised and jumped to my feet. Here was the tree-topped rocky isolate where the Franklin bends from south to east before its waters flow down the Newland Cascades to the river's wider, tranquil lower reaches. This lovely place had caught my eye on my first trip down the river with Paul Smith in 1976. Now Peter had brought the scene to a far greater dimension of mystical reality. He put the ancient upright island in the centre with no distracting rafters. 
The flood-swept cliffs of his photograph are populated with a rainforest throng which disappears into the lowering morning mist whilst, in the foreground, white foam patterns the surface of the river. It is as if we are watching the crowded decks above being mesmerised by the swirling curlicues below. Yet there is no one to be seen. The anthropomorphic construct clears like the mist to leave only exquisite natural beauty. Uh, Brown goes on in the essay to recount how Dombrovskis was happy with his reaction, but not convinced that this was his best photo. Uh, despite his reservations, the image worked. It was reproduced over a million times in newspapers, on pamphlets, on posters, with the slogan that you can see on the screen there. Uh, actually, no, I've got the wrong poster. But there was another poster that had the slogan, could you vote for a party that would destroy this? The Labor Party, which campaigned to save the river, won the 1983 federal election, but despite this, the Tasmanian government continued to build the dam. The matter was eventually settled in the High Court in favour of the federal government, the building of the dam was halted and the river was saved. In 1987, Dombrovskis married his second wife, Liz. She travelled with him on many of his photography trips and became an essential part of West Wind Press and the books that they published. And they include On the Mountain, which is a book about uh, a, a photography book of photos of Mount Wellington. That was done in 1996. Uh, a complete monograph called Dombrovskis, a photographic collection. Um, another one called In the Forest, which surprisingly featured pictures of forests. And uh, a final book, um, Simply Peter Dombrovskis, which was published in 2006. These collections mostly contain photos of the Tasmanian wilderness. However, Peter also travelled to and photographed Macquarie Island, Borneo, Mount Kosciuszko, the Daintree Forest, Fraser Island and Fiji. His last photographs were taken in Tasmania in March 1996. While working alone near Mount Hayes in southwest Tasmania's Western Arthur's Range, he suffered a heart attack and died. He was, as I mentioned before, only 51 years old. <clears throat> the Dombrovskis archive of over 3,000 film transparencies came to the National Library 10 years ago. Now, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that the staff at the library love this collection. And I mean, I always knew this to be true, but even so, I wasn't quite prepared for the outpouring of enthusiasm that followed when the library decided to publish a book and mount a, an exhibition based on the collection. Staff were talking about it in the coffee queue, the elevator, at the photocopier, in the corridors, before and after meetings, over lunch, basically everywhere. Everyone was excited, um, and when you look at the images, I think you can understand why. Any encounter with his photography, whether through the various West Wing publications, the images on our catalogue, the book by NLA Publishing, which I mentioned before, or the exhibition that you'll see later today, if you haven't seen it already, will reveal how his work transcends the limits of the wilderness photography genre, particularly here in Australia. It appeals to a broad range of people, not just the hardened bushwalker, obsessed botanist and photography buff. In fact, I would argue that the images appeal to people that usually would not be into wilderness photography at all, and that's because Dombrovskis is no ordinary wilderness photographer. Like many of his peers, he did go to remote regions, not often navigated, even by the hardiest bushwalker. He took technically accomplished and beautiful photographs of the spectacular Tasmanian wilderness. And as I already mentioned, he also took what is regarded by many as the most influential photograph in Australian history, Morning Mist. 
that there is also so much more to admire in the work of Dombrovskis. Like, for instance, his use of colour. So many wilderness photographers scorch your retinas with lurid, intense colours meant to grab your attention from a great distance. Dombrovskis' images are, are spectacular and eye-catching. Yes, a work like the one on the screen, Morning Light on Little Horn, does take your breath away, but they are also subtle and nuanced. The colours are rich and deep and draw you into the image. They make you want to look more. The light captured is never overpowering or loud. In images like the two on the screen, there is also plenty of room for darkness and shadow, mist and mystery. Unlike many other landscape photographers and painters, there is very little sky in his images. Um, whoop, wrong page. Sorry. Formerly, he has a tendency to push the horizon line high into the composition and change the position of the viewer. And I love this aspect of his work and the variety of perspectives that it offers. In one, like the image on the screen, Lake Oberon in the Western Arthur Range, we're flying above the lake and the surrounded jagged peaks. In this image, also on the Western Arthur Range, we are on our knees in a quiet moment of contemplation. The focus is on the shapes and patterns of the mountains, trees, rocks and plants. Pattern and shape are foregrounded in another signature aspect of his work, the intimate close-up details of natural elements. They are photographs that reveal, um, to paraphrase Blake, uh, William Blake, a universe in a thicket of seaweed or a cushion plant. In fact, sometimes they even reveal the photographer himself, such as in this picture where Dombrovskis, his camera and his tripod are reflected in every sphere of the seaweed. In fact, we start the exhibition with this um, sort of self-portrait. So when you go down there, make sure you get close to the, the image and have a, a good look at all these spheres because you'll be able to make him out. His style and approach for a wilderness photographer was unique for his time and ahead of his time. But like any... Hmm, is that all right? Is, I just lost my screen. No, it's all up there. Um, sorry about that. His style and approach for a wilderness photographer was unique, as I said, for his time, and it was ahead of his time. But like any artist, he didn't exist in a vacuum. Um, there were other artists and photographers that influenced Dombrovskis, and now I'd like to take just a brief moment to consider some of these. First of all, let's go way back almost 200 years. Before Dombrovskis, artists from Central and Eastern Europe such as Eugene von Gerard, Louis Bouvelot and Nicolas Chevalier came to Australia in the mid-19th century and painted awe-inspiring views of the Australian landscape. These artists were heavily influenced by Romanticism, a cultural movement that emphasised the senses, emotion and spontaneity at the expense of order, rationality and intellect. Particularly influential on the landscape artists was the romantic idea of the sublime. The sublime landscape unlike the picturesque or beautiful landscape, which was tranquil and ordered, dramatised nature's incredible, at times, overwhelming power. It shows the natural world untouched and uncompromised by man, with raging rivers, deep valleys, craggy mountaintops and wild weather, provoking feels of awe, even fear in the viewer. The viewer is humbled before nature, reminded that wilderness is here for them to respect, not exploit. Some of the first great sublime paintings and photographs of the Tasmanian wilderness were produced by William Pigony and John Watt Beatty. Pigony, a Tasmanian-born artist, travelled to the interior of the island and painted landscapes that Peter also visited, such as Mount Olympus, Lake St Clair, Lake Pedder and the Arthur Ranges. 
Beatty, impressed by Piganese paintings, sought to recreate some of the same romantic landscapes in his photographs of Tasmania's wild places. Beatty was also involved in the first environmental campaign in 1908 to stop logging along the Gordon River. However, the Tasmanian photographer that perhaps exemplifies the romantic tradition most is Elagus Trahanas, who I mentioned earlier. And he is the photographer most often cited as an influence on Dombrovskis, not, and not just because of his photography. As I mentioned earlier, their close relationship and their backgrounds as refugees and their love of the Tasmanian wilderness um, means that the two men will be forever linked in the public imagination. Lithuanian by birth, Trahanis emerged from Central Europe in the years after World War II. He had been part of the Lithuanian resistance during the war and immigrated to Tasmania in 1949. He worked for the Hydroelectric Commission in Tasmania, a job that put him in a compromising commission, uh, position given his increasing involvement in the campaign to stop the Commission's damming of Lake Pedder in the Tasmanian southwest, and that's Lake Pedder on the screen there, before it was dammed, obviously. Trahana spent his free time exploring the Tasmanian wilderness and taking photos. He was also quite an adventurer. In 1952, he was the first recorded person to climb the difficult Federation Peak solo and was also the first to canoe from Lake Pedder all the way to Macquarie Harbour and Strawn along the Gordon River. He took many photos of his journeys with his 35mm camera. These photos won him prizes. However, it is, a, it is the remarkable slideshow lectures of his journeys in the Tasmanian wilderness which captivated people on the island. Trahanas became a champion for the protection of the wilds of the southwest of Tasmania and was particularly outspoken about what would be lost if Lake Pedder was dammed and flooded. In 1972, Trahanas had intended to revisit and rephotograph the Gordon River as he had lost the negatives of a previous journey in the savage bushfires that engulfed Hobart in 1967. He drowned in the river at the beginning of the expedition and Dombrovskis, who I mentioned before, found his body and described him as, quote, a mentor and inspiration, an artist in living who led by example and lived life to the full. And certainly this was part of the reason that Trahanas inspired Dombrovskis. However, his photographic language and style, Dombrovskis's that is, was probably more influenced by the great American landscape photographers of the early 20th century. He was inspired as much by their grand panoramic pictures as by their intimate, sensual close-ups of natural elements that could reveal a universe in the smallest detail, as I said before. Dombrovskis wrote of these photographers, my own approach to nature owes as much to Alagus as the landscape tradition of mid-century America. I enjoy Ansel Adams for his finely controlled and logical composition, Edward Weston for his intense identification with subject matter, Brett Weston for his strikingly graphic structural forms, and Elliot Porter for his compositional subtlety and delicate colour harmony. Dombrovskis used similar equipment to the American photographers, large format cameras, which they used to give greater clarity to their images of the American landscape. And like Dombrovskis, they were also passionate conservationists. Adams and Porter were involved with the environmental group, the Sierra Club, who released highly influential and popular coffee, coffee table books featuring their photos, and this was a format that Dombrovskis and Liz would follow with their own West Wing Press publications. His choice of equipment is fascinating. <clears throat> For most of his career, Dombrovskis used a large format Linhof Master Technica, 
It uses film almost 16 times larger than a 35mm camera and allows the photographer to take extraordinarily detailed images. However, it was also heavy and cumbersome. When walking for a week in the wilderness, Dombrovskis had to carry the required food, tent and equipment, as well as the camera and around 50 sheets of film. So it wasn't like going out there with a 35mm camera or a digital camera, knowing that you could reel off a 1,000 shots and come back and cherry-pick the best ones. Every shot was carefully measured and weighed. Dombrovskis said, "'Because sheet film is expensive and loading it is slow and tedious, I seldom take more than one exposure of each subject. And when you look at the archive, you can actually see that. This occasionally leads to, a, to bitter regret when I misjudge exposure after spending perhaps an hour on a single image. So here's a picture of his tent. Uh, Dombrovskis would load the camera in his tent to protect the film from the elements, set up a tripod, compose a shot, and then wait for the right light or conditions before releasing the, the shutter. And I think a lot of his photographs actually show this careful consideration and uncompromising commitment to his process. As Liz has said, basically every, there's no need to crop any of Peter's images. They were cropped when they were taken. And now a little bit more about Tasmania. Early explorers such as Matthew Flinders and George Evans had described Tasmania's southwest, where Peter took the majority of his photos, as dreary, inhospitable, and altogether impracticable. It was an area that many Tasmanians saw in a similar light, and I think it, it uh, garnered several kind of not-so-favourable uh, uh, nicknames, such as the Transylvania of Tasmania, um, <clears throat> that which was one of them. Now, Dombrovskis' work helped change the perceptions of this wilderness, and in 1982 it was inscribed on the World Heritage List as part of the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area. It now encompasses some 1.6 million hectares, which is around 20% of the island. It includes the Southwest National Park and the adjoining Franklin Gordon National Parks, and also includes Cradle Mountain, Lake St. Clair National Park and the walls of Jerusalem National Park. And now those are also places that Dombrovskis photographed extensively. He also, he said of Tasmania, quote, I took photographs for the simple pleasure of recording objects and places that were important to me and because the discipline of photography increased my awareness of Tasmanian's beauty and made me appreciate more clearly the value of its wilderness. The Tasmanian wilderness is unique amongst world heritage sites. <clears throat> it is one of the few sites to meet all natural selection criteria and is only one of three sites to meet seven out of the ten natural, natural and cultural criteria. It is one of the three largest temperate wilderness areas remaining in the Southern Hemisphere and contains rare flora such as a slow-growing hewn pine, which can live for over 3,000 years, and the deciduous beech, Australia's only cold climate winter deciduous tree. The area is also geologically rich, with examples of rocks from all but one geological period. The vast majority of Dombrovskis' photographic archive, as I've mentioned before, are pictures of Tasmania. Uh, the library's collection of over 3,000 transparencies in that collection, only about 300 of, our, of our areas other than Tasmania, um, <clears throat> most of which are also World Heritage listed. Yet these non-Tasmanian images are as arresting as his Tasmanian work, and I just thought I'd draw attention to a few of them. Um, this up the top here, uh, we've got a, one from Borneo, Queensland, and Mount Kosciuszko, and he travelled to Borneo... Malaysian Borneo, that is, in 1985, 
He also photographed World Heritage listed sites in Queensland, such as the Tropical Daintree and the Fraser Island on the screen there. We've also got Mount Kosciuszko, which is in the New, New South Wales Snowies, and Macquarie Island, which is technically part of Tasmania, but located halfway between New Zealand and Antarctica. In an account of the voyage to Macquarie Island, Dombroskis wrote, whether distance or, or strange or close or familiar, I need contact with wild nature. It is, as necessary to, it is as necessary to my soul as breathing and eating are to my body. It gives meaning to my life and reaffirms my kinship with all life. Dombrovskis's contribution to the environmental movement is profound, but his technical ability and artistry as a photographer are equally celebrated. And I hope um, in my talk today and in the exhibition that's something that we've put front and centre, um, that, that technical ability and that artistry. In February 2003, he was inducted into the International Photography Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City, an honour afforded to only 76 other innovators in the art form's history. And he was the first Australian to be honoured in this way. Dombroskis' work has been collected by several of Australia's major cultural institutions, but his archives of transparencies lives here at the National Library. That archive has been preserved and digitised and, uh, and, as I mentioned before, are all now readily accessible to everyone on the NLA web catalogue. After this work was completed, which took uh, two years, I believe, or three years after the um, collection came in, the next logical step for the library was to feature the archive in a book and print some of the transparencies for an exhibition. And I was one of the lucky staff member charged with selecting the images. Choosing uh, the works for this exhibition was both a complete delight, but also, if I'm being honest, a little bit of a trial. Um, the guy hardly took a bad photo, uh, and as I said, he very rarely took multiple, multiple exposures of the same uh, area or, or scene. So every, just about every, photog every photograph is a unique uh, thing in itself. There are some series, but generally, as I said, and as Peter said himself in that quote I read out before, most of them are one-offs. With the help of NLA staff members, Sam Cooper, Isabel Trundle and Felicity Harmy, and in, consul in consultation with Liz Dombroskis, we did manage to get that list down to 80 works for printing, uh, most of all of which just about are downstairs in the exhibition. After looking at some of the West Wing press books, we decided to follow a similar structure to the book, The Monograph, A Photographic Collection, uh, one of those ones published by Liz. So we ordered our selection by region or place or, or climate. Um, so in the exhibition space, we start with photos of beaches and the ocean. We gradually move to images of rivers, then to forests, and we finish in the last room with snow-capped mountain peaks. Now, we sincerely ho hope that you enjoy the exhibition and the book, and they both further your appreciation of Dombroskis' work and all he has accomplished. For myself, I think arguably Dombroskis' greatest achievement is that he brought a touch of the sublime into our daily lives. His work has not been extensively exhibited in contemporary art galleries. In fact, this is the first comprehensive show in a major institution in Australia and the largest, I think, ever mounted. So most Australians encounter his photographs for the first time in quite prosaic settings, in a diary used at work, a calendar on the side of the fridge or a poster in a waiting room. Many of us will never go to the wilderness he photographed, but into the most ordinary everyday places he brought us something beautiful, images of a timeless, rugged and remarkable world. 
Thank you. I hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for that insight into how the exhibition was produced. We will um, go down to the exhibition in a little while. Unfortunately, there's too many people for Matthew to do a tour, um, but he will make himself available in the space to answer questions. But before we go down, we have time for a few questions if you have any. Uh, I, I don't think there was a major change. I think, uh, and it's been noted before by other commentators, he did start to take more of those close-up details. They became more of a feature. But I think uh, formerly, certainly his long shots, as I call them, coming from a film background, I think the composition of those shots was fairly consistent. I think his first book, um, he, he's very early in his career, he was taking pictures of... Uh, of architecture and uh, manicured gardens. So he was doing that with a medium format camera in the early 70s. But from the time he decided to go out into the wilderness and focus on on um, on wild places, his, uh, his photography remained, I think, fairly consistent, except for the increasing amount of yeah, small close-up details. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, and those were the Porter was uh, the one on the right there. Yeah, and Porter, out of those American photographers, was the only one that used colour photography. Uh, the rest were black and white um, photographers, the, the the two westerns and Ansel Adams. But um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't think he went to America, as far as I can ascertain. But um, he would have seen the the Sierra Club books. And he would have been very familiar with those because the West Wind books are quite... So those Sierra Club books that the American photographers used were quite groundbreaking and very popular. And they were um, uh, basically very big monographs with um, one page would be a, a photograph on the right and the second page would be a, a pithy quote um, or, or observation. Sometimes a quote by someone like um, one of the... Yeah, Thoreau or um, uh, the other American transcendentalist, uh, Emerson, yeah. Um, and so Peter was inspired by that. His, the West Wind books didn't have the quotes so much, but um, certainly the format was very similar. <clears throat> yes? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, and, well, I think... Um, there's something about that analogue. I think it's the amount of detail that you can get in the Linhof was still great. I mean, I don't know. I'm talking to the, the photographers downstairs. They're still amazed at the amount of detail that those old large format cameras could pick up, and they don't think necessarily that a digital camera gives you any more um, uh, resolution, yeah. And they also think that perhaps there's a people that use those cameras as a compulsion to play with it a little bit more, whereas the um, a transparency from um, from uh, the Linhof or a large format camera is quite pure. And in fact, a lot of landscape art photographers are going back to large format photography 
and moving away from digital photography. Um, and I think it also, it also uh, enforces a discipline on a photographer. And I think that's, that's a general trend in all the arts uh, and crafts is that people are going back to traditional ways of, of creating art because the process feeds into the finished product. And I think that's um, a trend that's happening in, in photography. Yeah, well, that's another thing that I think is pretty interesting in his work is that they're not... I think the colours, I don't want to say bleed into each other, but there's a... They're not eye-popping. I think that they're, they're deep and they're rich and there's a bit of a blend there, which I find far more interesting than those very sharp um, edges and edges that a, a digital photograph or a digital camera will get. Mm. Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, not to the best of my knowledge, no. No, I, um, I don't know a lot about Richard Green. Those, that exhibition was on at the library before I started here, and I'm not super familiar with his work. But, um, yeah, so I, I can't... Sorry, I can't, um, I can't comment on that. Yeah. Yes? Could you perhaps comment on one aspect of the Yeah. Uh, I think the lack of people gives you a sense of the timelessness of the landscape. I think sometimes people, they're either used in landscape photography as staffage, something to give a sense of scale to the image, but they can also give away a period or a time, especially if you look at Casper um, David Friedrich. Casper Friedrich David, I always get the names around the wrong way. And you see that kind of um, romantic... Um, Flaneur, which is the wrong word, um, but that the dress gives away a period or a time. So I think by not having people in his work, that um, that that uh, helps make the image feel timeless. And Peter often said that if you take that away, you're in the work by just viewing it, if that makes sense. But also I think it's very interesting that most of the works are in a portrait format. So rather than a landscape format, uh, which is what most artists would traditionally use with landscapes to give a sense of a, a panorama or a scale, his works are, you know, like that. Which um, I think over time, and I, I think the, Sierra, the, um, the American photographers do a lot of the same thing, and I think psychologically that has a, an impact on how you see the photographs. I'm not sure I can explain it very well, but you become used to seeing portrait formats with portraits, and so you have a very um, different relationship with the format than you do with the other one. If I explain, do you see what I'm saying? I, I can't quite explain the effect it has, but I do think it gives a certain personal nature to these pictures just because we're trained to see that format with a different kind of subject matter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right, okay. Right, ah, oh, right. Mm. Yes. N 
No, upside down and the other way around. Is there anyone that's used one before? Roger, is that right? Yeah, and he's looking through a viewfinder in the side, so he's not actually he's not actually got it to his face like that. He's kind of looking off that way. So it's a very it's, this is why I think a lot of photographers and artists like this kind of material because it's very um, physical. Uh, uh, you feel like you're physically labouring over something, especially if you're sitting there for hours, an hour, over the composition of a shot and waiting like this for the um, the right time to to to, to press the button. Um, so I feel like you know, physically you're more involved with it, whereas if you're using a 35mm camera or a, um, a digital camera, it's more like you know, you're a gunslinger just going... And it, it, you're not, you don't have that same kind of yeah, relationship with the process. Well, thank you Ooh. very much join us in the exhibition space, but otherwise, thank you for coming, and thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.